weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show. And my old pal, Sex and the City's own Candace Bushnell, who, by the way, is about to open in her own one-woman show. Yeah, Candace Bushnell. Sex and the City lady, now a star in the theater. Anyway, Candace is going to drop in and fill me in on her life, on Is There Still Sex in the City, and all the goodies. So I know you're going uh, to enjoy it. And then I heard an amazing young Chinese woman who had just written a book called Beautiful Country talk about from the pain in her heart what it was like to come here as a seven-year-old illegal immigrant with her two academic parents, their experience, their suffering, but America's America. And she grew up, this little girl, to be a very prominent lawyer from all the best schools. New York's public school system nurtured her. I think you're going to enjoy both our guests. And I'll tell you what, we have guests who can talk, God bless them. So Joan Eats, which we always start with, we're going to go right to our Let Me Tell You podcast, where today I'm going to take a look at some of the good mail order gifts for the holidays and you know, it's not too soon because mail order is a problem today. The mail, I don't know about the rest of you, our mail is, seems diminished. It's late. Some days we don't even get mail in our building because there's not enough of them to put out. It's late. So we've got a lot of stuff going on. But don't forget, in addition to our show, which we do today, every Sunday at 2 o'clock, we do the podcast. We podcast our show, and let me tell you, is another podcast that a lot of you like to listen to, so I'm not going to talk anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy what's ahead. I'm Joan Hamburg. First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show and a real treat today. Someone I haven't seen in ages, the one and only Candace Bushnell. How many books? Ten books, maybe more? Uh, ten books. Ten, ten books. I've written ten books. I have contracts for two more, so it could be twelve. Yeah, with Candace, I'm sure it is. She has done more things, and she's an actress. Now, I've known her as a writer since she was just a wee girl yes. and came to New York. And actually, we were both writing columns for the New York Observer. Yes. Graydon Carter was one of, you know, along the route, one of the major editors. And Candace's column was like... It, it literally changed the world. I still remember my daughter and her friends saying, do not call us at blank, blank time. This is as time went on. They were watching X in the City, yes, at 9 o'clock on 
Sundays. No one would want to go, not not even eat Chinese food. Exactly. And that was such an exciting time. They used to send me the DVD. No, they were those cassette tapes. This is how long ago it was, Joan. They were not even DVDs. They were the cassette tapes, and you had to have that VHS player. To have it, right. And so they would send it on Wednesday. I would watch it. I mean, I I often had seen, like, some of the cuts and stuff before. Um, But, you know, I would watch it. I would love it. And then I would be all nervous on Sunday night, like, I hope my friends are going to like it. (laughs) Well, and explain how it all happened. You grew up in Connecticut. You always loved well, to ride, I, but I, you loved horses as much in the beginning. Yes, and and actually it's interesting because my new play is There's Still Sex in the City at the Daryl Roth Theater. In preview, about which is to open. In previews, and will open on Tuesday. Um, it really traces my, my life story, how I came to New York at 19... And some of the adventures I have, and then how I created Sex in the City, how hard I worked to do it, why I invent, why I invented Carrie Bradshaw, and what happened to me afterward. So it's the the show is there's still Sex in the City is really my life story interwoven, of course, with Sex and Sex in the City. Right, and and Carrie, who everyone assumed was you, but I remember you once saying to me. I'm still trying to figure out who Carrie Bradshaw really is. Oh, well, Carrie Bradshaw was my alter ego. Right. And this is one of the things that it's this is pretty well explained in the show. Is there still sex in the city? Um, why I invented the character as an alter ego, because my parents were reading the paper and they were very, very conservative. And I had just gone to a sex club. For my first piece for the New York Observer. And and then it also, I also talk about how I unbecame the character at a certain point. Because there were some, you know, they had, the writers of the TV show were taking Carrie on a direction that I felt wasn't particularly Feminist, which is really uh-huh. what I'm about. Um, so that was when a, a part of me unbecame Carrie Bradshaw. Right. And but, and this kept going on and on. In fact, they're bringing back, we don't know what kind of version of Sex in the City, but that isn't your thing right now. I'm, I'm not involved in the reboot. Which has a actually has a different title. Right. Um, I think it's really more of a spinoff series. Uh-huh. It has some of the same characters, some new characters. Uh, the showrunner is a is Michael Patrick King, who worked on the show, but Darren Starr was the showrunner of Sex and the City. It's all very TV, and but for me, it's really thrilling because here I have. Basically, something that I wrote spawned this really now long-running TV series. And at the same time, I'm also making a new beginning on the stage with Is There Still Sex in the City? 
as an actress. So it's really incredible to have these sort of two different angles of something that I I right. started writing in 1994. Right. It's really everything. unbelievable. And I have two premieres next week. I have the premiere for Is There Still Sex in the City? The show is opening. And then I have the premiere the next night for And Just Like That, which is the reboot. Of so, Sex in the City, right. I just, I don't know how many writers there are who have like two major premieres, no, but it's incredible. In. And how many writers, it's one thing to be a fan and read, and it's another thing to try to model your life after what you created. And I've often wondered, because in the past, we've talked about this. I mean, it's almost like you sometimes want to say, not you personally, but get a life. You know, TV is not a life or real world. So many of your fans to this day, the shoes, the clothes, the men, the f- whatever, they were living or wanted to a TV life. Yes, yes. I mean, the, it, 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 it's interesting because TV was not something that New Yorkers did. New Yorkers didn't do TV. They did Art openings, movie openings, right. theater, if we could. Theater openings, but people did not watch TV in New York for a variety of reasons. Number one, the reception was terrible. Okay. I mean, before cable, you could not even watch TV, basically, for some reason. Well, they couldn't <laughs> get the signal. It was. And the other thing is, life in New York was so exciting. Who even wanted to stay home and watch TV? I mean, nobody nobody I knew was ever home, you know, ever. You 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 were in your apartment to go to sleep at four right. in the morning. And you were going to clubs if you could you get You were in going and- out, you were interacting with people. I mean, you were basically living your own super exciting TV mm-hmm. show. And in a sense, I suppose the TV show at the beginning captured that exciting feeling of going out in New York. And, you know, so I can really understand people just being very attracted to that lifestyle. I think what people don't understand is how hard it is to be a writer and to be successful in New York and all of the things that you have to go through and the ups and downs. And that's what we don't see. So it it seems like people have this idea, I'm going to come to New York, I'm going to be a writer, and it's going to be easy. And then they come to New York, and you realize, you know, New York is a place with closed doors. It's not, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, like, break in, and you have to work really, really hard, and there's a lot of rejection. Which you did. I'm talking to Candace. Yes, she's I did. about to open, but... In her one-woman show, and we're going to talk a little more about that. But what is it that you think caused this real breakthrough that was life-changing, world-changing for so many, for so many people? You were writing for, uh, we love the newspaper, but it was a very inside newspaper. Very insider newspaper, uh, the New York Observer. 
And I suppose in a way it was the New Yorker of that. newspapers. It was it was pretty highbrow. It was intellectual. There was an audience. Maybe the audience was, they said that it the audience is 50,000 people, but it's the 50,000 right. most important people in the world who are reading this paper. And it was very, very influential because so many people who were in positions of power in the media and in real estate, everybody who was a powerful person, or as we like to say, a bold-faced name, read the New York Observer. Exactly. And they started reading your column. Yes. And they started reading the column. It was, the column was, it was very authentic. Um, You know, for me... It was really my big break in the sense that I'd been writing for women's magazines. I had been writing pretty much, I mean, Sex in the City is, it was more than a book. It's, it's really my writing style and my worldview and my sense of humor about the absurdity of life, which is something that, it's, it's really my voice and I had that voice when I was 19 and I first came to New York. I I found some short stories that I wrote when I was 19. And I'm really, I'm writing about the same things. I'm writing about people in New York, sex, the absurdity of people's lives. Uh, society is very important. Uh, you know, New York is a place where there's really a pecking order. So it's all about those subtle social elements to life in New York. And as you have changed and grown with it in many ways, has any of that really changed? Is this a different New York? Are women still reaching out for men? I remember you once saying to me, maybe, and I'm paraphrasing, maybe women would be better off without all these men. Exactly. Well, when I was young, I think I wanted to write a book called World Without Men. And I do, I question this constantly, um, how these two different sexes affect our world and affect our lives. You know, I mean, on the one hand, men are very dangerous for women. Yeah, I've heard you say that. Why? And because three women are killed a day by by men in uh, intimate partner relationships. So a relationship with a man can be very damaging and dangerous to a woman. Uh, so that's something that we have to consider. And it's something that we need to think about. Um, Now I can't remember what else I was going to say at the beginning of this. Yeah, well, we were talking about how men can be dangerous. Do women really need men? Yes. And, you know, one of the things that, I mean, this was one of the sort of profound observations of Sex and the City when I started writing it because of economics and because of the career woman of the 80s, women 
didn't need men in the same desperate way they had needed them mm-hmm. in generations before. Like, you literally did not need a man to survive. Whereas, I mean, you know, in the 50s, the 60s, yeah, the 70s, you had to be with a man because you really did not have access to the income stream. I mean, how would you, you couldn't have a roof over your head. You couldn't have your own bank account or credit card. This was in the 70s. You could not have your own credit card. So the economics of being a woman have greatly changed. And it's also had a huge impact on women. Young women today in their 20s are not necessarily looking for a guy. You know, they're, it's so profoundly different. They're generally not looking for a man to support them. They're looking to self-actualize. And so many young women say to me, I'm really going to establish myself in the world, my career, who I am, what I love to do, and then I will have a relationship. And that's really a big that's a change. change. And it's very... I think it's exciting. What about the Me Too movement? Has that impacted your fertile brain? Well, I've always, I think what's happening is that all of that, this Me Too sexual harassment was, and sexism was such happening to such an overwhelming degree. I mean, when I first came to New York, it was shocking. It was shocking. I mean, things that happened in offices, things that men said, the assumptions about the way women were treated. But I'm curious. Is So my feeling is that we as women are finally in a situation where we can call men out for this behavior and be heard. Whereas in the past... There was no calling anybody out. But when you came here at 19, was it shocking? In my generation, we grew up with the casting couch. Yes. You know, we, we believe it or not, we weren't shocked. It was the way it was. I remember some woman saying to me at work, I was with a big ad agency then writing copy. You know, she said, I'm really insulted. And she talked about one of our bosses He's after every woman here, and he hasn't made a pass at me. Now, if that happened today, the guy'd be finished. Yes. His career would be wiped out. And, and you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I mean, I really, it's it's disheartening, it's demeaning, and so many women, women have been put in a situation where you can't really do your job because you're spending all of your time trying to negotiate sexual politics uh-huh. that you have no interest in negotiating. And, and I mean, the more that women don't have to do that, the better. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I did not work in so many businesses in New Good. York was because of those sexual politics. That was really the biggest reason why I started working for women's magazines to the detriment of my career. 
Because if you wrote for women's magazines, you were not taken seriously and you were not paid much. Yeah, you were in a category. So I was, it's like I would rather have less money and less prestige and not have to deal with sexual harassment. That's how adamant I was. And um, and then that's really of, a statement. Right. And out of all of this came Sex in the City. Yes, out of all of this came Sex in the City. Yes. Candace, I'm sure that even she, when she looks back at her life, it's like, what? How did this happen to me? I was jumping my horses, having a nice... You know, Joan, actually, that's not true. Tell me. When I was eight years old, I had an epiphany that I was going to be a writer. And I always felt that I was going to do something important in the world. Always. But as a woman, I didn't feel entitled to say that. Now I do. But you believed it. I believed it. Yes, I absolutely believed it. So I always felt like I had a message... But I felt, as a woman, I wasn't entitled to say that. But, Ben, I'm curious. And as Candace pointed out, even though she's a writer from the time she was a child, it takes discipline, it takes skill, it takes learning, it takes recreating all the time. But acting, you know, you don't just wave a wand and say, I'm an actress. And here you just, you suddenly we hear... Candace Bushnell is going to open in her own one-woman show. And I know how hard that was because I started out as an actress, the neighborhood playhouse, the whole bit. It's a killer. And there you it's, are. It, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, honestly, when I was younger, I always, I always felt that I could act because it's really about imagination. But... There was so much sexual harassment around it that I could not even consider doing it. And, you know, now at 63, nobody's sexually harassing me, obviously. (laughs) So I think it's something that was maybe a little bit in my blood. Although I have to say, I am so happy that I've been a writer for the last... 40 years professionally and and not an actress. I mean, I just love writing and creating. And you still do, right? And I still do. I still do. So, and you can see, Candace, is there sex or is there still sex in the city is at the st- Daryl Roth Theater? Yes. And it's, there are seven performances a week and people can go to, there's a website, www dot is there still sex in the city dot com for tickets and information. Does that make you nervous when you're on stage? No. Because now you're in preview, so you have real audiences there. No, I love it. I love it. There's like a lot of interaction with the audience. We have a game, real or not real. It's it's I mean that's what what's so great, I think, about Doing theater is that interaction with the audience. And audiences have been loving the show. That's great. So what you're doing a show, an almost impossible feat in this town, you know, to put a show on, a show, sell tickets, get an audience, and especially during a pandemic, this is going. What do you want 
now. You've had the most successful books, movies, the whole bit, TV things. I, what? I, I keep going. I mean, it's not, it's not what I want. It's the process. It's the doing that is satisfying. You know, the end result you have no control over. I've written books that are horrible flops, but I've loved writing that book. I've written books that were very successful. You know, every single one of my books has been optioned to be a TV series, but three of them have made it onto the air. And, but it's really, it's, it's the doing of it. And I feel like, if I couldn't do it, that would be the bummer. I mean, I because I was a freelance writer for so long, my focus is really just how am I going to have enough money for the next year well, that's a realistic, to, you know. you know, be able to afford to do what I love to do. So that's really what it's about. It's the doing of it. And, and you do it well, and you've done incredibly well in this. Yes, and it's... And it's really, it's kind of wonderful to be doing something professionally for 40 years. I've been a writer professionally for 40 years. And you really do get to be a master of it. You know, you feel like you have some mastery over it. You you know what you're doing. And that's exciting and so fulfilling. So when you sit down to write, you don't have that anxiety? Oh, or I have anxiety. I mean, every time one sits down to write, there's so much self-doubt. There's so much, like, you can't do this, you suck. I mean, there's a really a negative voice in the head. And that was overwhelming to me when I was in my 20s and 30s. And when I got into my 40s, I said to myself, you know what? Put the voice aside. Just put the voice aside, revisit the voice at the end of the day, but put the voice aside for the moment and move on because I could get caught up for like two hours just dealing with self-flagellating myself. But that's normal. It is. That's normal. But it's not actually helpful. Anyway. I want you all to go see Candace's show. How's your social life? Do you feel you want a partner? Um, you know, one of the things I've learned is you never know what's going to happen. So just be to, open. You know, to me, it's you've got to be able to be on your own and with a partner. And I know so many people who it's just about being open and it's about enjoying where you are at the moment and feeling good about yourself i want you to all go see is there still sex in the city at the daryl roth theater you'll meet candace and you're going to see she put a lot of work into this thank you for visiting we'll talk again thank you joan it's always so great to see you i'm joan hamburg that was candace bushnell we'll take a quick break we'll be back with lots more you're listening to wabc stay tuned The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Not that long ago, 
I heard a woman speak. It was at a central synagogue occasion, and she was talking about her experience as a Chinese immigrant, how she came to America, to New York, in the 90s, a little girl, seven years old. Her parents, both academics in China, professors, of course, they accompanied her. And she talked about her parents' struggle working instead of a university in sweatshops. And suddenly this family, which was happy and together and part of a big, large group, has to deal with living in the shadows of being illegal. She herself was made fun of by her kids at school, by her classmates. It was the library that saved her. As time went on, and I'm going to let Chen Zhuli Wang tell you her story, Beautiful Country, which I read, I had no clue, that in Chinese, the word for America translates to beautiful country. Is that true? Yes. Thank you, Joan, for having me. And yes, the title of my book comes from a direct translation of the Chinese word for America, which is Meiguo and directly translates into beautiful and country. And we thought that it very much represents the ironies of the American dream, the two Americas that exist in our country, depending on the person, their family, and how they came to be here. You know, I read your book, Chenjuli, and I really enjoyed it. But, I mean, it was an extraordinary journey you took us on. And both my husband and I were very involved for our grown-up lifetimes with the International Rescue Committee. So we have a strong sense of what it's like to be immigrants. But we didn't, even with all these years, deal with the issues that you dealt with, being illegal, being afraid, being afraid that every time you see someone in uniform, that was someone out to get you. And it's amazing that you survived this kind of childhood and went on to do all the extraordinary things you did and that your memory is so acute that you still reflect and know the pain of being seven years old and not fitting in. I thank you for your kind words. I I think it's important to, to point out that there are millions and millions of people out there who are still dealing with some of the very same barriers and issues that my parents and I dealt with back then are, and are privileged enough now not to encounter anymore um, to some degree. And as you mentioned kindly earlier, it was really books and literacy and stories that gave me a sense that I could find a home, build a home here, and eke out an American existence where I might be belong and be accepted. And part of that um, inspired me to keep detailed diary and journal entries in hopes that one day I might be able to tell the story to so many children, teenagers, young adults, and adults out there that they are not alone um, because I find so often the Asian American stories, undocumented American stories, are very rarely, unfortunately, reflected in media and in books. Right. And the anxiety and the loneliness you felt, it 
it was so real to those of us reading Beautiful Country that you could share all this angst and what it is through the eyes of a child and how your parents suffered. But your father barely even complained because he had the American dream. And what a difficult life, the work that they had to do to just put food on the table. And as you point out, very often there wasn't enough food and you came of age, even as young as seven, in a culture where feeding and eating and sitting around a table and cooking was so much a part of it. Absolutely. And I think the childhood perspective really helped me render the story in stark light, both in terms of some of the realities as filtered through a child's eyes, which can at once make it easier to experience and read, but also harder because through kind of a more naive lens, it's, it's harder to um, truly accept what is happening. And without that adult editorializing, I hope the reader is able to get more of an immediate experience. But that lens and perspective also allowed me to capture some of the true heroicisms of my parents, which was that they were able to maintain and capture hope and joy for me. They my father wrote a song for me made of made up words and he still found time to continue singing that for me and dancing with me and, and playing pranks on me. My mother found a way to make working at the sweatshop a game. Um, she never lost her sense of humor or her, and she never failed to remind me that it was temporary and that what we were dealing with did not, was not going to define us and that we were going to make it out, which, at the end was was that hope that um, pulls us forward every day. And when you look back after writing the book, uh, Chen Julie, did you feel like catharsis had set in? It, it really made a big difference to get this story out of you, that it was easier to go forward once you had told your story? It's been a non-linear experience. So when I first set out to write this um, in 2016, which was the year I finally became citizen, 22 years after I stepped foot here, um, I very quickly realized that I didn't have the tools or resources to actually render the story on the page because I had not processed the story for over 20 years. So I went into therapy and really took apart my life and really tried to analyze and understand it so that I could come back to the page with that kind of understanding and sense of healing. What I didn't realize was that in the process of writing the story and then uh, finalizing it for publication and to set it out into the public, that was another layer of processing and healing that I very much needed and the privilege of publishing this book has afforded me. The ability to put my stories out there, the secrets that I have kept for most of my life, to put that out there for public consumption has been at times and continues to be to this day incredibly terrifying, but also very much empowering because I feel that I have claimed my identity, my life from those secrets, from the shame that I derive from those secrets. Right. And now for the first time, the I name feel that my calling. Parents, yes. And, and now for the first time, I feel that my parents and I are free and untethered 
from that past that we never felt safe to talk about. And we are free to finally build a future that um, can be whatever we dream it to be. And your parents, how did they feel when they read the book? Did it make you nervous to give it to them to read or did you wait a long time? I waited a long time. I actually waited until publication day. Um, I think it's probably every parent's worst nightmare for their child to write a childhood memoir, especially to this level. (laughs) Especially to this level of detail. And and there's, I mean, with my father's trauma of coming from a dissident writer's family in in China and having had his brother write something that the government did not appreciate, I think it it awoke some of the um, childhood trauma in him. But when they finally got the book, they said that they could not keep themselves from reading it, even though it was hard to revisit those years. And they felt healed and liberated by every page. And when they finished, they said that um, now our truth is out there and there's nothing we are afraid of anymore. And it wasn't until then that I realized that at age 34, I was still waiting for permission for my parents to feel safe. And finally, I had gotten it. Which is amazing. And you went on to go to Yale Law School. You went to Swarthmore College as an undergraduate, are having an extraordinary career. What do you think allowed that to happen? I mean, who was there to tell you there's a college called Swarthmore College? And (laughs) it, it, you know, because... If you live in New York City, we take a lot of things for granted because it's part of the process. But how do people who did not have this background or don't have any means have access to this? I got incredibly lucky and I was very privileged in many ways. The heroes of my life have been my public school teachers and librarians. Um, To this day, despite my fancy post-secondary education, the best teachers I have ever had have been my third grade teacher who was in the book and my ninth grade teacher. They were teachers who saw me, saw my potential, saw what could be harnessed and mirrored that back to me, but also guided me. And it was my public school teachers in high school who told me about Swarthmore, which I had never heard of before, did not understand that I had to go through a entire process yeah Yeah, whole admissions process get recommendation letters and without the heroic efforts of these public school teachers who really are frontline workers in so many ways they are in charge of not just teaching our society's children but um, mentoring and spotting signs of abuse and making sure that they stay in school i think truly public school teachers are the unsung heroes of our communities and the very much the same uh, is true for librarians. Um, you mentioned earlier that I learned to fear authority and distrust them, but I never felt unsafe in a public library. I never felt like I could not trust a librarian and that was not an accident. They know how to make children feel safe. They know that the community needs resources like them and librarians are really front line in um, assuring equal access to individuals and communities who need it most. Right. And and they were there for you and books were there for you. Your mother, it could be a separate book all, all by itself. Yeah. And I loved the stories. We, we commiserated with her. We suffered with her. But 
her anxiety for her child and my, one of my college roommates her mother could have been your mother, the same thing. Mm. She'll say, I crossed um, 75th Street to get to a place, my friend, my roommate. Mm -hmm. And the mother would say, oh, did I tell you? My neighbor tried to cross that same street and was run over and is dead. <laughs> and everything like your mother. You didn't call yeah. me last night. I knew yeah. that you were murdered somewhere. I mean, her anxiety and all the fear that she had with even when you told her good news, she didn't want to hear it because she was afraid it would be a jinx. Yeah, yeah. And I remember the first time I worked up the courage to tell my parents about my book deal, which was six months after it had happened. And the very first thing my mother said, which broke my heart, was you want the whole world to know what an awful mother I was. Oh. And I realized for the first time in that moment that she had carried the guilt of my childhood with her the all of these years. And, yeah. and she felt like it was singularly her fault. And so I think she continues to feel in many ways that it is her job to protect me from all other further risks, including crossing the street um, and minor things like that. And. I guess, learning to embrace um, many mothers at love language of worry and understanding that as a sign of love more yeah. than anything else has really liberated me to be able to accept that love and appreciate who she is. Exactly. Was she happy when you told her you were getting married or her anxiety spilled over? Uh, she's the both. It's always both with her. She's always happy for me, but she's always worried for me. Of course. <laughs> she doesn't want anything <laughs> bad to happen. And and I can I can only imagine that I would probably feel the same. I only have dogs at this point, but but I can only imagine that as a mother, you feel like you your heart is walking around the world outside of you, and there's so little you can do to shield it. Of course, so, and your mother yeah. went through real trauma. Yeah, and and she saw me go through trauma, and we went through it together. And in many ways, that was a bonding, a true bonding experience. Well, and we learned to trust each other and rely on each other in ways that many families didn't have to. But in another way, it um, that that those experiences will forever stay with us and affect how we interact with each other. And your mom also went through an illness, and you had to deal with all that. You know how again, under the shadows, how people are treated when they do get sick and they're trying to hide it because she didn't know what to do. Is she well now? She's well, yes. So she, she was sick when I was little and continued to be sick through my high school years. But luckily, I think with improved the nutrition and continual care, she, she's been, um, she's fully healthy now. But yes, I, I think many people who have had parents who fell ill early in life can relate to this dynamic where all of a sudden the there's a switch that flips and you go from the protected child who feels safe in her mom's presence to the one who feels like she has to be protecting her mother, taking care of her parent and making sure that um, you are the one watching out for her. And once that changes, once that dynamic flips, it can be very hard to revert back. So I feel like for the rest of my childhood and, and life, I've been on guard for my mother falling ill and making sure that we are doing everything possible to keep her healthy. Right. And so and so far, so good. And the book is, is of course, the story of um, Chen Julie and her family coming of age. 
in a country that they had envisioned in one way and reality sort of took them on a different journey. But everyone came through. But all the stories that parents don't even think about, the gift exchange, and I forgot what holiday it was from. Maybe it was the Christmas holiday when you Mm -hmm. had a grab bag. And you talk about sort of you were so proud of finding your gift and everything and the humiliation when you saw it in context with the other kids. Yes, I had no idea what Christmas was. It was my very first Christmas here, and we were told that we were to bring a gift for Secret Santa. And again, having had no experience, and also I think when you are a child, you believe that your immediate experience in your life is universal and that every child might be hungry on some level and every child might be ogling pencils at the store without being able to buy them. And so I had been um, admiring one Hello Kitty pencil for uh, probably the entirety of my time thus far in in, the, in New York City, and I thought this was the perfect time for me to get it for Secret Santa and get it to a classmate. How thrilled would they be? I mean, this is my dream. Because you were thrilled, right? Yeah, and actually, in the evening after I bought it, I would secretly use the pencil because I had so wanted to know what, what it's like to write with that pencil. And when I arrived the next day with the Secret Santa gift, I realized how meager and paltry my little gift was in the exchange, which was opened in front of the entire classroom. Everyone knew that it was from me. And uh, compared to the giant teddy bears and the water guns and the toys that I didn't even know existed, mine looked so small and cheap. And it was then, I think, that the very first time it set in where I was in the social ladder, where my family was in the social economic ladder, and the shame that came with that and and embarrassment. I mean, to this day, I think about that experience. It it does, it stays with me. And I think a lot of us have those childhood experiences, especially in schools that still dictate what we do day to day in in our adult lives. Right. And as you point out, your story is not alone. There are so many immigrants in this city and so many illegal. Your teachers were there for you. The library was there for you. And you did have parents who loved you. But what do you think when you do lecture and talk to groups? What is it going to take to get immigrants, many of them under the shadows, like you and your family were, to get through, to have a shot, to get success? Uh, Number one would be a systemic immigration overhaul of the legal system. I mean, people often ask me, why couldn't you all just apply for a visa and become documented? And I say, and all my, after all my years of legal training, (laughs) I'm very well versed in the law to say that the immigration system could make sense. To anyone, I mean, it, it doesn't even make sense to most immigration lawyers, much less someone who is new to this country and does not have access to, langu- to the language resources um, and the community resources that you would need to, to understand that. But I think also in the interim before this system overhaul can even take place, community resources are number one because 
when you are living undocumented, you don't know who you can trust. You don't know who you can talk to. And that means that even for the resources that the system does make available for new immigrants and undocumented immigrants, it can be near impossible for families to figure that out. Like, what can I get for my child now without anything changing? And so having grassroots community coalitions, outreach, where I'm seeing more signs now across New York City, even in Chinese, saying you can come and get this free meal. We do not ask for any documents. Having more of that kind of outreach and the understanding that fear really takes over every single decision you make in that environment and atmosphere will go a long ways in making inroads and accessing the families who need the resources the most while we continue to push policy progress forward. I thank you so much, Chen Julie. Her brand new book, Beautiful Country, on top, struggle to survive and read it because it's it's a story that everyone should know. And maybe you'll look differently at your neighbors, at the people coming into this country who just want a life, a better life. Thank you so much. We'll talk again. Thank you so much, Joan. I appreciate it. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. Should I buy a real tree or an artificial tree? That's become a big question because finding a Christmas tree may be difficult this time. You can go to a cut-your-own-Christmas-tree farm. In fact, one that friends went to in New Jersey said the thing was mobbed and the prices were exorbitant. And to make matters even worse, artificial trees are, believe it or not, made overseas. So they're vulnerable to all the supply chain issues that retailers are struggling with. So what can I tell you? We're already in the beginning of December. Don't wait. Buy your tree now. And if you go to the Cut Your Own Tree Farm every year, call them first and check the policies. Do you know that after calling a couple, a lot of them say, do you have a reservation? Some even said, we're sold out. So Jones Family Farms in Shelton, Connecticut is requiring reservations for weekends through 12-12. The reservation charge, $87 plus tax per tree. All sizes, you can only have one car, and if you have another one, it's 20 bucks and not getting a tree for that one. Call 203-929-8425 for information. Now, Emmerich Tree Farm, 101 Sleepy Valley Road in Warwick, also requires reservations, but that's over today. And their prices are four to five foot tree, 65, five to six, 86 to seven, 95, and it goes up and up. A nine foot, 150. Prices include tax. Check it out, 845-986-0151. And on Long Island, Tilden Lane Farm, They're limited this year, and they're concerned that Cut Your Own may run out. But they are hoping to have pre-cut trees throughout the season. Prices start at $75, 
43 Wycliffe Street in Greenlawn. So, and that's another good one that we like. Call them just to make sure they have trees. Well, who did this in years? 631-533-5960. Home Depot is selling seven-foot live trees, and that's a bargain, starting at around 50 bucks. But when we called our Home Depot, we were told, come in now, we're selling fast. Artificial trees bear chain supply issues involved. Consumer Reports evaluated six trees to find a high-quality one. And they talked about it's much more complicated than you think. Consumers are facing shortages, shipping delays, and they said you can even get an artificial tree for $9,000. The best overall tree, Home Depot, Home Accents, Holiday Jackson, Noble Fir, $299. They had LED lights. They said it looked real. It was easy to set up. The luxury pick was Balsam Hill BH Balsam Fur with candlelight clear LEDs, $5.99. You can get it online at balsamhill.com. And the most realistic looking tree, this is all consumer reports, was Newberry Spruce green artificial Christmas tree, $3.90, and they like the branches and the lights. You can always go online to Consumer Reports and find out yourself. Also, check Wayfair.com. So the thing is, right now, and we just called a couple of days ago to check all this, the trees were there. But everyone we called said, like in awe, we're running out. Everyone is taking what they can get. So if you need a tree and want a tree, don't wait too much longer, okay, guys? And I'm looking at the clock, and we're coming up to the 3 o'clock. There's a great rest of afternoon here on WABC. And don't forget the Joan Hamburg Show every Sunday at 2 o'clock. And if you miss it, go to our podcast. We always podcast the show. And go to Let Me Tell You, our other podcast or Facebook, you name it, we're everywhere. I thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. I'm Joan Hamburg for WABC Radio.